0: Hello, I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Yahya Mishriki. Yahya is a 63-year-old physician, Christian, and father. I met Dr. Mishriki during my internal medicine rotations, and I have been quietly dogging him ever since to sit down for a conversation, and it has been worth the wait. We discussed how his life changed over four hours, becoming a widower 28 years ago during the birth of his second daughter. We explore his Christian faith and how his belief in perfect love helped him through the challenges of his life. And we even cover Star Trek, near-death experiences, and a quantum physics explanation for the existence of God. Before we talk more about Dr. Mashriki, I want to talk about my long-form Sunday's posts. Uh, These are reflections that I write on a weekly basis since the first anatomy lab of first year of medical school, um, and up until now. And so on November 19th, I published on a mishmash of reflections, or almost halfway done with third year. This week, I reflected on the busyness of last week, a relaxing night with friends this weekend, and approaching the halfway point of my clinical clerkships. Then, the previous week, on November 12th, I published On the Cold, or Embracing an Ally. This week, I reflected On the Cold. Over the past two years, I've become accustomed to the Florida heat, and now that the Pennsylvania winter has arrived, I'm reminded of some practices that I've lost. First, a story about a date night. Second, a wistful remembrance of a garbage cat. So, Dr. Mashriki is a father, a widower, and a doctor. Before Yahya dies, he wants to spend more time with his wife, children, and grandchildren, to read all the books on his shelf, to start going back to church, to finish his stamp collection, and to become a member of the American Osler Society. When Yahia dies, he wants to see his wife. After Yahya dies, he wants to be back with God to, and to see Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 46 be the gold, golden rule for everyone. And in conclusion, Yehia says, I recommend that you should look or recommend to look up John Donne, the mystic poet, and read his piece that begins, No Man is an Island. Read that and take it to heart. Your fellow human beings are a part of you. We are all connected. We really are all connected. So, this, like I said, I've been looking forward to this conversation for, for about like six months now, ever since I really sat down with him for one of those rounds and we kind of had a conversation and we, and just hearing him the way he talks, he talks very professorially. Um, you know, he talked, he's, he's the kind of fellow that thinks in essays, not just paragraphs. And uh, it comes across in this conversation and you can tell I'm really nervous. He, I got really pressured speech. I'm just like, so jazzed up to be sitting down with Dr. Masryke. And, uh, Uh, it's it's been great. It was a great conversation and, uh, it takes it. You'll, you'll hear when we start talking about his experience as a widower and, uh, that moment when he tells you, uh, exactly. I mean, I don't want to spoil it. You'll see. Uh, but 10,502 days, it's just whack. It's just, it was just like, oh, this is, this is going to be a conversation. Buckle up, Eugene. And uh, in retrospect, I feel like, uh, I, I think this is my 60th interview for On Death. And I feel like this, the 59 preceding interviews have prepared me uh, for this, this interview. Because it's a, it's a, it's a, we cover some really heavy stuff. We um, navigate some uh, difficult conversations. And it's, it's, it's really lovely. And I, you know, afterwards, Dr. mashriki I, I have to call him Dr. Masryke. I can't call him yet, yet. here. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Masryke says, uh, uh, you know, this was like, it was cathartic and being able to talk about this, the, about death and dying. And, uh, he mentions it towards the end of the interview that he hasn't talked about his, uh, his first wife, Barbara, uh, in, in, at, in this depth, in this detail, and for many, many years, and I, I understand why. Because uh, his first daughter was three years old when he became a widower, and uh, his second daughter was born the day that he lost his wife. And uh, you know, he he remarried. He tells me he's very happily married. He, but you know, it's tough to talk about the loss of your, to talk about the feelings associated with your first wife, with your current wife. And uh, I understand that, and I imagine it's tough for, um, tough for him to talk about his first wife with his children because they don't really, they never really knew her. And, um, I hope that this gave, you know, this, I, I think you, you'll hear it. It's a, it's a, um, a lovely conversation, both from the content and from how, uh, willing Dr. Mashriki was to be vulnerable and talk about things that are hard and talk about things that are, that bring up lots of emotions. And, um, and uh, one thing that I, I apologize for is the, like the last like 20 seconds of this interview was cut off. Um, you hear you hear his his concluding thoughts and everything, but it's like right towards the end of those concluding thoughts that he uh, that the, the, the recording cuts off. And so to make it up to you, I will uh, complete a reading uh, that will be appended to the end of this of uh, John Donne's Meditation 17, which is the uh, the poem to which he is referring uh, no man is an island uh, and hopefully that will make it up make it up to you but you know I got we got a lot of good stuff out of dr. Mashriki. and uh, this is this is an interview that I'm incredibly proud of and I think that uh, you should really take I this is you know this is an interview that I will listen to again and again in the future uh, at different times just because I I think uh, it's it, it it he has thought about things about his faith Um in a way that is very rational and at the same time, very based in love and in faith. And it's a lovely combination of, you know, the hyper-rational thinking clinician's mind and the, um, the, the father's love and the husband's love. It's, it's a really, really beautiful um, connection between the two. And um, it's, it's a really, there's a lot of wisdom here and a lot of earned wisdom, which is my favorite type of wisdom uh to listen to. And uh you know my partner Mackenzie she was saying that uh who I would have never known that my spiritual beliefs line up so close closely with Dr. Masriki. And that's you know that's kind of the point of this uh interview series is to is to highlight that like oh you know you, you 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 see the people in the clinic you see people all in your everyday life behind the cash register you might see somebody and you might not know how much you have in common how much you believe the same or how much you feel the same about certain things unless you sit down and listen and that's the hardest thing to do is to listen and that was a it was a uh, it was it's really uh, a lovely experience to sit down with uh, with uh dr Mashriki. so um i hope that you have uh you, you you set aside the next you know hour and a half to you know shed a tear listen to some stuff and uh and uh really expand uh your understanding of, of what life is, because I think that's, you know, I hope I'm not overselling it, but I don't think I am, that this is a really lovely conversation. So uh, get your coffee ready, get your tea ready, um, bundle up, get ready for a lovely conversation with Yahya Mishriki on death. It is November first, 2017. I'm sitting here in the Lehigh Valley Physicians Group practice building in, in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Uh, Dr. Mashriki, what are the four prompts? The four prompts are: I am. Uh, what do I want people to think? What
1: do I want people to think of before I die? When I die, and what do I expect after I die. Correct. I think,
0: yeah. And uh, what do you, uh, How do you finish that first prompt? I am.
1: Well, you know, I, not to say, again, not to sound right. <laughs> no, one, no person is one thing. Mm-hmm. So we're all, we all have multiple personas, always. Uh, some are public, some are not public, mm-hmm. but we have many personas. So I am, first and foremost, a father. Uh, I am a husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a doctor and a, t- a teacher. I consider myself very much being a teacher. I am a brother. Uh, I am a colleague. And one of the things I would say I am, uh, high up on the list, I'm a widower. Mm. Uh, and that's, um, that's an important part of what I am.
0: So let's talk about those two things, uh, specifically being a father and being a widower. Yeah. Um, what, uh, which one would you like to talk about first? Well, let's talk about it. My
1: kids. That's a nicer topic.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what, uh, how old are your children now, and uh, what, what? what is your relationship to fatherhood, and how has it changed uh, from when they were young to, right. I imagine, now their adulthood? Yes. Oh, yes. So my older
1: daughter, Katie, her former name is Kate, but we call her Katie. She's 32. She's a mother. She has a three-year-old, my first grandson, oh, Sebastian. Uh, she is in a wonderful uh, marriage. Her husband, Brandon, is a terrific young guy. She's currently pregnant with her second child, mm. about 15 weeks along. She is currently studying to, for a master's degree in museum administration. She is an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives, mercifully, only 35 minutes away, <laughs> so I get to see her and get to see my grandson. Um, so that's Katie. She's a very unique person. She's very highly, highly intelligent. Takes after her mother. Uh, very artistic but also scored in the 97th percentile in the state of Pennsylvania in mathematics. So she's both a glass blower and she can think mathematically very well. So she's an interesting combination of her mother and me. Mm. Uh, That's Katie. My younger daughter, Hannah, is 28. Uh, she 'll be twenty nine in january She is a, an electric i 'm sorry she 's an environmental engineer she 's pure science. Mm. my one daughter is art uh, <laughs> go with the flow of emotions. My other one is pure science you know can do anything in mathematics that she wants she's uh, she is like i said an environmental engineer. She moved to Colorado about uh, five months ago unfortunately so we won 't be able to see her as often as we used to She mm-hmm. is in a steady relationship with a young man, uh, Evan, for the last maybe four years, which is the longest she's had a steady relationship, so this might be the one for all mm-hmm. we know. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so Hannah is the, the side, the right brain, and
0: Katie is the left brain part of the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, uh, how is it to have your, you know, to go from fatherhood to grandfatherhood? How has that transition? been? Oh,
1: it's, it's one, I mean, obviously everybody you've spoken to has been a grandparent, loves it. Uh, it it you know it allows you to go back to that time of having the small child and enjoying a small child, but without the external stresses that you had when they were small. So when your children are small and you're in the beginning of your career, you work a lot of hours, you're very stressed, you have less time to spend with them. Uh, and when you do spend with time with them, again, there are the external stresses you're always feeling.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: When you become a grandparent, you don't have those stresses when it comes to the grandchild, mm-hmm. because the parent takes, takes the brunt <laughs> of those stresses, and you don't have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's the, a, cha- a second chance at being a father and enjoying the child without the pressure of when your children were small. Mm-hmm. So it's really quite special, really quite enjoyable.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that is a, and that is also a relationship. The grandchild to grandparent is one that I understand is very special it is um and uh is there is there some is there was there a grandparent in your life that kind of no
1: no both my I mean my father's mother died when she when he was about ten. Mm-hmm. I never met her. My father's father died when I was two years old. Mm. never spent any time with him. He died of a complication of an epidectomy back in the old country my mother's mother died when she was when her mother was 21 Mm. died of tuberculosis my grandfather on my mother's side died he was about 42 of a brain cancer so uh, i never met my grandparents never had that luxury i i do have my my wife my first wife who died 28 years ago her parents sort of became like grandparents but it it wasn't quite. That. We didn't live in the same town. We didn't see them all the time. Mm-hmm. But they're wonderful, wonderful people. But I didn't. I didn't have a grandparent experience to speak of.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand that because uh, my parents. My. My parents are from Korea. They immigrated here when I was uh, before I was born, yeah. and uh, all my grandparents speak Korean, and I do not speak Korean. Right. So that is that has been a, a large barrier to that kind of a relationship. Sure. Um, and so you uh, you have one grandchild that is three years old. You have two daughters, yes. uh, both adults that are yes. that sound like they're successful. And um, what uh, what is fatherhood like? Is and I imagine now you have a nostalgia behind you with sure. with them uh, having grown up and starting their own uh, starting their yeah. own families. Mm-hmm. What is it like? Well, so, it you know, it, it comes to... So, I
1: hate to say they become friends rather than children, mm. because still, I am the parent, and I come from the old country where your kids are not your friends, no matter how, <laughs> much, how close you They're not your friends. They're mm. your children, which actually is a much closer intimate relationship. But they are young women who are successful. They're intelligent. When I... Talk to them. The level of conversation is all so so different than it was. It's a high level of discussion. They're intelligent. They know a lot that's going on. Mm-hmm. They, um, you know, I cannot. I can no longer uh, bamboozle them <laughs> because they know more than I do about a lot of things. So mm-hmm. that's taken the conversation. The conversations we have are much more meaningful, obviously, than when you are well, When I say meaningful, it's often metaphysical. Besides, the, so it it's taken a different level. Um, which is fe- lovely. I love it, so you, and I am just absolutely floored by how bright they are, how capable they are, how independent they are, um, how intelligent. I mean, it's it's. A, I really have enormous respect for them. Mm-hmm. You don't respect your children when they're small. It's not this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. you, know, you love, you adore your children. You do anything for them, but respect is not part of it. But now I have this respect for my children as young adults. Um, and uh, it's 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 a terrific new stage to be in. Having said that, I definitely miss the, <laughs> miss there being small. Mm-hmm. As hard as it was, and as uh, as difficult as it was, it was a wonderful time.
0: How, when did that transition happen to, to the respecting them as a young adult like, is, there a, is there like a yes. moment you can point no, to
1: no it no 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 you can feel it so you know when they hit college mm-hmm. and they're studying and they're becoming very knowledgeable about, about certain things and they start thinking differently and you can see that their way of thinking about things mm-hmm. changes mm-hmm. they're no longer the adolescent that's reacting they're the adult that's thinking it through and has reasons for why they think what they think it's a rational way of thinking Uh, And they're developing a a stronger personality, and they're developing beliefs, uh, and they have reasons for those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it it happens probably at the college level. Once they leave your house, (laughs) really, once they leave Mm -hmm. your house and you don't have control over them from minute to minute to minute, that relationship starts to change Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a good way, in a good way for sure. But that's what when they're gone and they're on their own and they
0: don't have to rely on dad all the time. Mm-hmm. That's when the relationship changes. And so let's talk about mom and and your and your identity as a widower. Uh, mm-hmm. And you briefly mentioned it uh, twenty five years ago, I believe. Twenty eight years ago. Ten thousand five hundred and two days. <sighs>
1: How? Tell and me I, about. I may it. have to stop once in a while. Absolutely. even though it's been 28 years, almost 29, it's still difficult to think about. So, you know, when people say, well, you're going to get over it in time, you don't get over it. <laughs> you, you learn to live with it. You accept mm-hmm. it. I mean, I accepted my wife's death. I'm a, I'm a Christian. So the, the, the fact that she died, in some ways, this may sound strange, was a terrible tragedy, but it was not a tragedy. Because as a Christian... I believe that we all go back to God, all Mm -hmm. of us, Mm -hmm. Christian or not, whether you believe it or not, you will go back to God, in my opinion. Uh, So when she died, it was a horrible thing. But if it weren't for the faith that I was as certain as I could be within faith, obviously it's not a scientific knowledge, it's a knowledge through faith that she is okay, it would have been absolutely unbearable. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that got me through. So and she died during a caesarean section. She died of a complication of Caesarean section. They, her doctor said she had a I was there. I was there the whole time. Her doctor said she had a placenta procreta. I don't agree with them, frankly. I was there I, I soon botched it up. So she bled and she continued bleeding and then went into a spiral where she went went into shock. Mm-hmm. Could not be brought back, he was not able to stop the bleeding. He should have done other things. I don't want to get into <laughs> that right now. I was, I was there. I'm the first one to suggested, how about he had never ordered any blood to be um, typed and screened before the procedure? So no. he's fumbling around. I said, what about unmatched, uncross blood? Just give it to her to, you know. So he said, yes, that's a good idea. And he did that. Then I said, how about doing this? Yes, I did. So I was telling him what to do. But she was not responding, and she eventually bled to that. I mean, they eventually had me leave the room, mm-hmm. and they worked on her for another two hours after that. But she never recovered. So, you know, I, had, I went in that morning with one three-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old at home and a wife who was pregnant, and that afternoon I went home to a three-year-old with a newborn baby and no wife, just, just like that. In the course of four hours, life changes on a dime. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, so, you know, like I said, that that marks you. That uh,
0: marks you for life. What, uh, what, what have you learned from that? I mean, what, how, how have, can you even point to things at the ways that it has changed you? Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> we may be jumping the gun, but if, talking
1: about. Death. Mm-hmm. You know, I have thought of death almost daily since that time. Mm-hmm. Not in a negative way. I mean, I, when, after she had died, I was thinking, you know, I know I'm going to see her again. I'm, I'm remarried, very happily remarried. My wife right now is a wonderful woman. I love her dearly. But when, after Barbara died, I, my, my thoughts were, how long is it going to be before I see her again? I said, if I live 15,000 days, mm-hmm. that'll be X number of years, And then i that's why I know how many days it is. I said, okay, it's been one day since she died. It's been two days since she died. It's been three days. It's been four days. It's been that many weeks. It's been that many years. I know it's been 10,502 days, which is 1,500 weeks and two days today. And if you really must know, plus three hours and 20 minutes. So that idea of, Death and what death can do is is basically with me every every day. Now I, I'm not macabre about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to die quickly to be with her, but I definitely look forward, mm-hmm. eventually, to seeing her again.
0: There is th- there is no none of that uh, fear or uncertainty or. Or you you have you have almost a destination. You're...
1: Yeah. So he, you know, as far as fear or or l- absolute certainty, Doctor Larry Larry Merkel was the chief of endocrinology. He was a very religious man, very very good man. And we would we would talk about religion now and then. And we talked about you know having doubts. People of faith having doubt. And he said, and I love what he said. He said, the only people who don't have doubts are the saints and fools. <laughs> Everybody has doubts. So mm-hmm. do I ever have a little doubt? Absolutely. Once in a while you get that that horrible feeling that what if I'm wrong? What if, I, what if my beliefs are not true? Luckily, you think it through and it passes. But everybody has doubts. But overall, I feel fairly mm-hmm. secure in my faith that the promise, again, as a Christian, there's been a promise that we all will be reunited mm-hmm. with God and with each other. And so... I, I hold on to that faith. It, it's what's gotten me through, like I said, especially in the beginning. It's what's gotten me through. Otherwise, it, I cannot, for people who don't have faith, who have someone really who, whom they love die and not have a faith that everything is still going to be okay, it, it would be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I would not be able to deal with that. People have to. Uh, f- thank God I didn't have to worry about that. mm mm-hmm. So that's how that's changed me, uh, you know. But uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm
0: sure we'll we'll circle back to this. I, you know? I'm sure we will too. That's uh, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. Uh, I would like to dig into your your Christian faith, and I would like to understand uh, if you had a religious, if you had that religious upbringing uh, during your childhood, and how has your Christian faith changed? And I'm sure that that death has uh, is almost like a crucible to it.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, uh, my faith has not changed it's become more complex mm-hmm. um, my mother is basically the person who really gave me the foundation of my, my faith my my bedtime stories half the time were parables parables <laughs> of Jesus those were my, my bedtime she would tell me the stories of a, and she would explain to me what they meant and so I, I grew up with that I also grew up my mother was raised by the nuns, well, not really the nuns, she, she was raised by her cousin, but she went to a Catholic school where the nuns had much to say about what you believed. So mm-hmm. she had a Catholic upbringing. My father went to an English school, so he had the Anglican Christian faith. Mm-hmm. It was, it's more subdued. Uh, so, but my mother was with me more, more, most of the time. She's the one who taught me about my, her faith and, and what turned out to be my faith. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't changed in, in a great way, amazingly, because she had great... I think her belief was so strong and so pure, she's still alive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that it, sus- it has sustained me and it hasn't changed a lot. She is not a traditional Christian in the sense that dogma, this is what you believe, there's no questioning, and this is what it says in the Bible, and therefore that's true. Mm-hmm. She said no. You know, he said, and she would quote. She read extensively about religion, and she read outside of the Christian faith. That she would quote Buddha, and she would quote other, you know, mm-hmm. to make her point. And the point was that, um, you know, God gave you a brain. Don't park it at the door when it comes to faith. You have to analyze, evaluate your faith and say, does it really make sense, or is it really does not make sense? And so, for example. I was not raised to believe that if you're a non-Christian, you're not saved. Only Christians are saved, which is what some Christian sects teach. Beyond that, they even teach if you're not within our own sects, you're not saved. God forbid. If you're Catholic but we're the Baptists, well, then you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, she said everyone is saved. Uh, God loves everyone. What kind of God would we believe in that we believe that some people would be saved and others would not. Mm-hmm. It, it made no sense, logically speaking, if you believe in an infinitely good and loving God, which is what we believe in. So my faith has not changed. It, it's become even stronger in that regard. The more I have grown up, the more I've seen, the more I have realized that Christians don't have, I I think we have the, the truth of Jesus, but we don't have the only truth. Other faiths have truths also. Now, they may not believe in in the divinity of jesus which we as christians do but that doesn't mean that their faith is wrong or Mm -hmm. false it's not it's correct as well we just have a little extra that they don't have that's Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. and so that's been my faith i you know in in first john the epistle of of john the first epistle fourth chapter eighth verse it says god is love three simple words god is love and if you truly believe that and if God is perfect then God is perfect love and if God is perfect love then there's absolutely nothing that we as humans can do to alienate him from us mm. because if you say well God is love but these are the requirements you must fulfill in order to you, for you to be loved by God or to be accepted by God then he is not perfect love perfect love does not require anything in return perfect love only gives requires nothing so if God is perfect love, and I believe he is, not that we should misbehave or do evil things. We shouldn't. We should all try to do the best we can. But if you are someone who is not, who is not always moral or who sins, we all sin, but who does things that are less than good, mm-hmm. does that mean that God does not love you, or that you? No, absolutely not. You cannot. There is nothing that can, in, in, in the Bible says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. So that's how my faith is. That's how it's been from the beginning because of my
0: mother. And have you uh, 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 pr- like given that, that same style of faith, that same uh, style of Christianity to your children?
1: I've tried. My kids are not necessarily believers. Mm-hmm. In fact, my older daughter for a while was an atheist. I think she's come around now to being maybe agnostic. <laughs> uh, I think being a mother does that to you partly mm-hmm. that partly all the discussions she and I we've had lots of discussions about religion my younger one have not had too many discussions with her but I also think that her she doesn't have a Christian faith it's its a little upsetting um, but it is what it is I think the best I can do is to always try to instead of being angry or rebuking them is to always try to point out the good things first of all their mother Barbara their mother had a very strong faith She's very very had a very strong faith and I try to point that out to them to say that it's something that's important to your mother. You should think about it. Now, again, you can't force someone to believe something if they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my older daughter, who was an atheist, now I think is more in the agnostic area. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I pointed out to her, which kind of really <laughs> took her aback a little bit, because she's she likes science and all that. And I... you know, atheists think that they can explain the universe without necessarily the existence, not not, without, without the existence of a deity, of a but in quantum physics if something is not measured or observed, it does not exist Mm -hmm. it just doesn't, so even Einstein said, you mean if I'm not looking at the moon, it's not there, and someone said to him, yes, if you're not looking at the moon and nobody's looking at the moon, it is not there That's what quantum physics says. It is only the measurement that collapses the wave wave function and makes it all of a sudden go from being a spread out possibility to a one area definite. So I said, if God exists, because we have a universe that is here and constantly here, it is God observing the universe that makes it exist. If God were not there observing the universe, it would not exist. Mm -hmm. And a very famous astrophysicist who was an atheist as he started thinking about that, I wish to remember his name, came to that conclusion. He said, no, there has to be something observing the universe Mm -hmm. for it to exist, Mm -hmm. because quantum physics says so. (laughs) And if we believe quantum physics, that has to be the case. When I told that to my daughter Katie, she said, wow. (laughs) I have to think about that. And it swayed her a little bit. Mm -hmm. But getting back to that, now, unfortunately... I say, unfortunately, I mean, again, I don't think in the long run it's going to matter to God. But I wish they had faith. I wish they believed Mm -hmm. in God. At least it doesn't even have to be in in a Christian idea of God. But I I do wish they had they believe in God. For one thing, I think that it makes life—I don't say bearable—but it gives purpose to life. I personally, I you know, any atheist, true atheist, who says that they have purpose in life. Um, I don't think I've thought it through. If there is no creator, if you are not a child of God, then the material world as it exists is all that there is. And so everything is material in origin and basis, including love. So if you say to me, I'm an atheist and I love my daughter. I'll say to you, what do you mean by you love your daughter? I love my daughter. I'll say, well, if you mean that there are synaptic changes that take place and neurotransmitters that go from one part of the synapse to the other and certain hormones that go on to activate <laughs> this part of the brain and that's what that means, okay, I'll buy it. But that is not loving your daughter. And I don't think anybody ever believes that that's what it means. When you say you love your spouse, you love your daughter, there is something mystical and mm-hmm. completely metaphysical that has nothing to do with the physical life. If you truly love someone, I'm not talking about when you're 17 and you're head over heels about that pretty girl in high school. Mm-hmm. That's, that's hormones. <laughs> but when you, when, you, when you experience true love, and you know it when you experience it, it's very different. And that, in my opinion, comes from God. That is not a mechanical, electromechanical, hormonal thing. Mm-hmm. So if you are an atheist then I feel sorry for you because, frankly, the the love you have for the people you love is purely biomechanical, biochemical, material love. Mm-hmm. It has no real meaning. In my That, to me, means... But if you say, I love someone, and that love derives from the essence of God, it's something metaphysical, then it has meaning. And, frankly, they may not believe it, but their love, if they really truly love their spouse, their friends, their... Tr- that love is not coming from their neurons. that true love is coming from elsewhere mm-hmm. They may acknowledge it or not they may deny it, but I think they're wrong
0: <laughs>
1: but it's my opinion
0: i like it it's a it's a very uh, i can tell that you've thought this opinion out uh and argued it? it and, and uh, sharpened it over time yeah and um it does seem that my uh, this generation uh, uh like our 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 like story is that we go away from the religion and we sort of tiptoe our way back yes one way or the other yes
1: and and, and you don't I can, I can there's a lot wrong with religion mm-hmm. the, the the main i mean the 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 main organizations all of them in every sect and every special, you know in all faiths have done terrible things that we should be very uh, sorry for Mea culpa you know <laughs> but but you, to throw away religion to throw away faith mm-hmm. with religion is throwing away the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You can re- you can reject the church for what it stands for and there are a lot of things you can point to the church and say it's done these things wrong and I don't believe in what it believes in those particular but that's not the same thing as faith. Faith is independent of church. Now I love the church. I think that and and I think my role in the church is to try and change it. Mm-hmm. So leaving the church doesn't make it any better in my opinion it makes it worse because someone has to be there to say listen me, you know, I think you're getting it wrong. We need to rethink this. Mm-hmm. So, but, but you can have a great faith and not belong to the church. So I think that people who who reject religion because of the, the things that the religion has done in the past which are unconscionable are throwing up the baby with the bathwater. It's okay to reject the established religion or at least to criticize it without losing your faith. They're in, they are... Um, What's the word I'm looking for. They're separate. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually
0: exclusive. Exclusive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your identity as a doctor. Yeah. Uh, Why do you choose doctor rather than physician? I actually often say physician. Uh, When I'm asked, what is your occupation,
1: I will say physician. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a mixed bag. Physician, there are lots of doctors that are not physicians. Mm -hmm. So doctor is a very large category the professors at Cedar Crest College are doctors. Mm-hmm. They've got PhDs. So they're doctors, really. They should be addressed as professor this or doctor that. Mm-hmm. And I address PhDs as doctor when I see them. I think it's a, a term of, of respect. You've mm-hmm. got a PhD, I'm going to call you doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I think getting a PhD mm-hmm. is probably harder than getting an MD. Mm-hmm. So I consider myself a physician. Having said that, the nice thing about the term doctor is that it comes from the Latin docere, care means to teach. Mm-hmm. And part and parcel of being a physician is being a doctor, to teach. You teach your patients, you teach your colleagues, you teach your residents, you teach the students, you teach the community, etc. Teaching is a crucial part of being a doctor. It's implicit in the name. So I like the term doctor because of that, but I prefer in some ways the term physician because it says you are a healer. Not a
0: person with a postgraduate, de- you know, advanced <laughs> postgraduate degree. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
1: there's a difference.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, why did you pursue a, a, a career as a physician? Was it because of your father? Was it uh, yeah. was it was there some sort of independent uh, you're trying to fight against that identity, and, right. and then you came to it? No, no. So uh, yeah,
1: my my father never pushed me to be a doctor. In fact, he in some ways seemed to be a little pushing a little hard the other way. Because he wanted to make sure I wouldn't do it for the wrong reason. Mm. Mm -hmm. So he never said, oh, you really should become a doctor. My mother never said, oh, you better become a doctor. There was never that kind of pressure. I, I was very good, and I enjoyed science. So science is something that was important. And, you know, as trite as it may seem, here you are in a profession where you help people. But having said that, when you are young and you're thinking of being a doctor, you have no clue what it is. You have no idea. You say, oh, yeah, I want to help people. But... You know, that's something that sounds good, and you sort of believe it, but you don't really, you've not instilled it or distilled it really into what it means. And you go in because you want to be, uh, you you like the field as a field. And it's only when you get into care of patients that then that really becomes a reality. So I went into medicine because I liked science a lot. I saw what my father did. My father was, he was a pathologist, and he saved lives. And you, I can cite cases where if it were not for his right diagnosis, someone would have had a terrible procedure done to them that he saved them from. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to help people. I mean, I think you all, we all want to help people. Certain, I'm a child of the 60s, you know. We, want, we wanted to you know, cure the world, heal the world. But it was a superficial way of thinking because I had no really deep understanding. And it's only when I got to medical school, and even in medical school, in the basic sciences, I had no clue. It's when I hit the wards mm-hmm. and I started seeing people mm-hmm. and touching them mm-hmm. and talking to them. Then it became clear what a doctor does. Before that, it was more an abstraction. What? So what What does a doctor do? A doctor heals. A doctor heals. Even if you can't... Now, healing is not curing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can heal mm-hmm. people and not cure it. In fact, I had a lot of patients in my practice that are never going to cure... But I think I heal them as often as I can. People I've had who have died that i tried healing. And so it's, it's, a he, it's healing is what, is what it is. It's trying to heal someone, whether it's their psychological problems, their physical problems. I try, I try not to delve too much into the metaphysical or religious aspects. But frankly, I have no problem discussing religion with my patients, none whatsoever. And, and in fact, I share my faith with them if I think it might help them and I, it's not proselytizing. I'm not saying, you know, you really should be a Christian because of it. I just say, this is how religion has worked in my life. Mm-hmm. It helped me get through crises. Uh, if you have an option, if you belong to a church, if you belong to a mosque, if you belong to a synagogue, and you have that option, I would seek it out because it's something uh, that's useful and helpful. Uh, in, in Matthew, it says, for what will a... For what will a man have gained if he has? For what will a man? For what will a man have profited if he has gained the world but lost his soul?
0: Mm.
1: So I can help you with the world part. I can't help you with the soul part. You need to go to someone that deals with that thing. But it's a crucial part, I think, of helping people, and it's very often ignored. Uh, if someone is struggling and having a hard time, I always ask them: Do you have a faith of any kind? Do you have people you can go to who? can help you with that and if you do I encourage you call the church call the synagogue make an appointment with your rabbi to sit down and discuss this
0: so but that's part of healing mm-hmm. and, and how how did you come to this because the you know, a lot of physicians, a lot of people in medical schools as, uh, associate healing with curing. That, those are the same thing. Absolutely. If I do not cure them, then I do not heal them. Uh, has that has it always been a part of your practice? Is this something that you've had to learn the hard way? Um, you, you always learn it the hard way,
1: but it, but, but, it, <laughs> but it was part of my practice very early on. It's something that becomes clear very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in practice after just six months to a year, you know... But you're not going to cure 9 out of 10, or 8 out of 10 people you see. They've got diabetes, they've got this, they've got that. You're going to try and keep them as healthy as you can for as long as you can. So you realize very quickly that healing is a lot more than the cure. Mm-hmm. There is a very famous French saying, which is, um, uh, let me see if I can remember it. Um, "Guérir parfois, soulager souvent, uh, consoler toujours. And it means to cure sometimes. To
0: support often, and to console, always. I like that quite a bit. Yeah. And one thing that uh, we we medical students sometimes call you is the Jedi of the physical exam, <laughs> and, and you roll your eyes probably accordingly. Uh, I remember you told me that uh, you if you were and you would have your skills would be average if you were an intern in the seventies,
1: maybe fifties. <laughs> maybe fifties. <50s. laughs> Not seventies. Yeah, the skills have fallen. Uh, a lot unfortunately so again it becomes this is what happens you graduate to residency things are better now than when i was a resident Uh, and you start practicing medicine and you realize you should realize if you don't then there's a problem you realize that you're inadequate Mm -hmm. You very quickly realize i am just inadequate i don't know enough my skills are not good enough Mm -hmm. and i've got to work on those so i realized very quickly i was inadequate and one, there are two options you take. You say, well, I really I'm a, I'm, I'm, my exam is not that good. I don't know much dermatology. I don't know much this. Better, I'm going to send you to the dermatologist whenever you have a rash. I'm going to send you here. That's one option, which is highly, highly unsatisfactory. <laughs> the other option is to say, well, I'm going to have to get better. Mm-hmm. And you take it upon yourself. And you say, what is it that I'm lacking and how do I fix that? And th- that's what I recognized very early in my career. I said, I've got to fix it. And I had some clues very early on that how things, how, for example, the exam was um, important. Probably the very first, I think the s- first or second day of my doing introduction to clinical medicine, we were paired, another student and I were paired with a cardiologist, he was an old time cardiologist. He was he was probably in the 60s at the time. He took us to the bedside to see a patient who had much of our prolapse, I'm sorry idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis now known as Hoken with obstruction and the patient was in the va and i could see the patient and the this cardiologist started to examine the patient tell us all about asymmetric septal hypertrophy and mitral valve this and, and i'm thinking i have no clue what the man is talking about what to me i was completely at a loss but i did look under the bed and i noticed that the patient had his shoes and one of them had a brace on it and a big heel lift so the, the cardiologist asked, do you have any questions for this patient? And I said, yes. Apparently, one of your legs is longer or shorter short than the other. Were you born that way, or was that something you acquired? And the patient starts saying, oh, no, no, I had this. And the cardiologist looked at me and says, how did you know? I mean, the guy's in bed covered how did you possibly know to ask that question? I said, well, I looked under the bed I saw his foot, Mm his shoe. And I realized right then and there you've got to be observant Mm -hmm. and you've got to develop skills of observation as well as, you know, auscultation, percussion, etc. And I started working on that at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and I've, I've been working on it ever since. And I can truly say that I think my physical exam skills in the last three to six months have improved as compared to a year ago because I've been spending a lot of time listening to tapes by proctor harvey subtleties and things that i was not very good at that i've gotten a bit better at Mm -hmm. because i'm working on it now you have to understand i'm not claiming extra i'm not super smart it's just you you can do it if you put the effort in Mm -hmm. but it takes effort Mm -hmm. it's not going to happen on its own it doesn't happen magically just by making rounds you've got to take the time you've got to put in the the hours and you've got to close the circle as they say apply what you hear and learn to the patient, come back and study it some more and keep doing that Mm -hmm. so if I have better than average skills, it's because I've spent the last 35 years
0: working on it Mm -hmm.
1: and I'm still not anywhere near where I think I should be
0: and that, that i think is the sign of a of somebody who is at least on the road to master to to being a master is, is the, just the realization that i don't know much and i'm trying to work and these skills are perishable and i must hone them every day yes and uh, one thing that also strikes uh, stands out to me is that those skills of observation um, they're almost lost in people that don't have them it is that it's like you if you don't notice it you don't notice that you don't notice it and it's it's a very it's an odd game of like of when you notice something it's like am I picking up on something or am I just is this something that is not important and it's, it's a very tough uh, delineation
1: yes but you have to be people are not observant unfortunately not because for one thing they're constantly distracted
0: mm-hmm.
1: the iPhone the <laughs> iPad nobody stops to look and actually register what they're seeing because they're distracted mm-hmm. um, and, that, and that's a huge problem in medicine um, observation is still the first thing your exam a physician's exam starts the minute you lay eyes on that patient before you say hi. Mm-hmm. The exam has started. And, and it's a pity because, frankly, one of the things about physical exam and getting a good history is that when you do make a, a, a good... When you come up with a, a physical finding that's useful and helps crack the case, it is so satisfying. <laughs> so not only is it good for your patients, mm-hmm. and you should do it primarily for that reason, but, Lord, let me tell you, it is so... Personally satisfying that people should do it just so they can get that wonderful feeling of I did it, I did a good thing, Mm -hmm. I did it the right way. You know, it's worth it just for that. That's a
0: selfish reason, but it's still a reason. Mm -hmm. You got sometimes you have to pair the selfish and the selfless together to to keep things moving in the right direction. I
1: I would still do it if it was not making me happy, but when I do something, when I pick up a finding that everybody else has missed and I'm able to make a diagnosis. I'm walking on cloud nine for the next week. (laughs) You feel feel great.
0: Mm -hmm. And so how do you finish the next prompt, Before I Die, I Want?
1: Before I die, I want to spend more time with my wife, my children, my grandchildren. That's one thing. That's very important. Mm -hmm. I want to read... All those books I have on my shelves at home that I just... I I read every day, but I don't have time enough to read. That's very important to me. I want to learn. I want to understand a lot more than I... I want to take courses at colleges to just learn things or understand things that I currently don't understand. So I want to be immersed in my family. I want to be immersed intellectually. Mm -hmm. I want to... I don't go to church very often. I think about religion every day. I think about God every day. I don't go to church on weekends because Sunday morning comes and I'm exhausted and getting out of bed and getting out there at 8 o'clock in the morning is just not going to happen. I Mm -hmm. want to start going back to church again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to finish my stamp collection. I want to do the little models. I want to go fishing a lot more than I have. (laughs) These are all very selfish things. Um, But those are the short-term things I want to do as soon as I... before I die. But you know everything these are the things I want to do the other things were say oh, well I want my reputation to be cemented and but that takes care of itself that is not something you plan for you do the best you can mm-hmm. and then come what may uh, but I, I just want to spend more time with my family read learn study go to school for certain things like philosophy and religion history uh, and just relax a little bit mm-hmm. Oh, one other thing. Before I die, I want to become a member of the American Osler Society. What's that? It's a group of physicians and non-physicians who have been involved with Osler, either writing about him, discussing him, lecturing about him, and it's, it's a very small, select group of people. And I used to think that in order to get into the American Osler Society, someone had to die before you could get <laughs> in. Apparently, that's not entirely true, but I recently got a um, an in. To at least put my foot in the door and maybe start the process to eventually become part of that society. That's the one thing in my career I've not done that I want to get done.
0: Mm That's that's almost because the the things like spending time with your family. That's that I don't think you'll ever you'll I don't think you'll ever have enough time no. with your grandchildren. I don't think you'll ever have enough time with your children. No. Uh, I don't from the way you talk and the way you just discuss things. I don't think you'll ever be satisfied with your amount the amount of knowledge you've accumulated. No. The, the author society sounds like the only thing where it's a binary. Like oh yeah, yes. once yes. I'm in, I'm yes. fine.
1: Yes. <laughs> so uh, the person who's in charge of it apparently I can contact. I've been given an email from Dr. Burke Cunha, who's one of my former mentors, and he's a master's of the American College of Physicians, and a member of the American OSA Society, and he said, why don't you give him, send him an email and sort of drop a hint that I was speaking to Berg Cunha late, yesterday, <laughs> and, you know, and that, that might allow me to get my foot in the door. Like mm-hmm. kind so, of grease things along. Yeah, so we'll program. see what happens. But that, that would be the one little honor I'm not big into honors. I'm not into getting awards and all that. But I'd love to be able to say I'm a member of the American Osler Society. That would really be, you know, that would be something. Why? Why? Because Osler is the prototype of the ideal doctor. Uh, Osler is what we all should be emulating. Osler is the doctor who just did it all and did it all so well. <laughs> you know, none of us can be Oslers. I can never be an Osler. But you should aim to be like Osler. Incredibly knowledgeable, amazing skills, um, gifted. Uh, he, he, he did so much, he wrote so many things, he discovered things, he, he was the ultimate humanist. He, he did it all. Mm-hmm. I, I can only find one thing in his entire career that I can look at and say, well, he kind of missed the boat on that one. And it was just a small little thing It had to do with a sentence. In a letter, he wrote Lady Osler from Egypt <laughs> when he was traveling there. Mm-hmm. And so Osler was, uh, he was not a, se- an, an, a Semite, an anti-Semite, which in those days a lot of people were. Mm-hmm. He was not someone who was against women, as a lot of women were kind of misogynist back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But he was in Egypt, and he said to his wife, these people are so filthy, no wonder they cannot rule them. You know, they, they cannot <laughs> rule themselves. Well, they were being occupied by the British the people he was seeing were the poor peasants who just mm-hmm. worked the land. What do you expect from these people? That is very much what's called the white man's burden. So Rudyard Kipling talked about the white man's burden, where white, the white European civilization would bring civilization mm-hmm. to these barbarians and these uneducated people. That's called the white man's burden. It's basically a very... What's the term for that? But thinking that you have the ultimate truth and the ultimate goodness and these people who are dirty and not as educated as you are lesser than you and you're bringing them civilization. Mm -hmm. So that sentence by Osler smacked of the white man's murder, which shocked me when I read that because otherwise he was such an egalitarian. <laughs> so I'll, I'll forgive him that one thing. <laughs> but everything else, he was just the, the ideal doctor. We all should be working to be like William Osler.
0: He's almost like the asymptote that is like that you should try to aim for, probably will never yes, get there. exactly right. It's exactly right.
1: I, n- I will never be an Osler, I know that. Mm-hmm. But I sure as heck am going to try.
0: <laughs> will Will you ever know... Like, is theres there... Is there like, is there any point where you, where you, or would you just feel arrogant if you're saying like I've reached that point of? Yeah, awesome.
1: you're right. you'd be arrogant. Absolutely. I've said before, if I ever get to the point in my career where I tell the residents, okay, I got it, I got it down, I know what I need to know, I, my, my skills have reached the pinnacle, they can't get any better. You better take my stethoscope away because I'm dangerous. Mm-hmm. You should never, ever, ever, ever think that you have reached the pinnacle. You can't. Mm-hmm. You can't. There's always room for improvement. And it is arrogance. It's Mm self-deception. It's not only arrogance, but it's self-deception. You're never that good. I've always said, you're never as good as you think you are, and quite
0: as bad as other people think you are. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere in the middle. You're somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Oh, how do you finish the prompt to when I die, I want? Uh, Well...
1: Well, when I'm dead, I won't want anything. <laughs> this when, is true. When I'm dead, and hopefully, if my beliefs are correct, and there is a heaven, and I do believe there is a heaven, it's not a mystical thing up there. You know, People really make these things sound so silly that it's easy to understand why people who don't believe think that they're crazy. Oh, you want to go to heaven, be, you want to act, you behave a certain way so you'll be rewarded. Heaven is not a reward. He, heaven is going back to the, to the source, God. So once you are dead, you no longer desire anything, everything that you want. And, and, and you no longer want things that are material and selfish. Mm-hmm. You want things that are completely, uh, uns, you know, un, um, self-reflective, etc. So do I want people on the other side of the veil to think well of me? That would be, that'd be very nice. But really, when you're on the other side, it doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Do I, what I really want, I want to certainly be back to God. Absolutely. I have questions. (laughs) I have questions. I want to see my wife. But there'll be no wants after that. There'll be no desires. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: it, it's 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 hard to explain what heaven will be like. But I think that God. First, one thing. First of all, there is no time in heaven. So there's this concept that people say, well, eternity. When you go to heaven, there'll be an eternity. To, well, the idea of eternity is frightening. <laughs> it really is. You mm-hmm. mean forever and ever and ever, one day after the other, ad nauseum or ad infinitum. That's scary. But there is no linear time in heaven. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. I don't think any of us can think that way because we're all grounded on time. Mm-hmm. But I think in heaven, there will be... If, if if knowledge what is what you seek, you'll be able to gain knowledge. Uh, I think you can continue learning in heaven. Um, if love is what you seek, you'll have plenty of it. God will be there. The light mm-hmm. will be there. The people you love will be there. All the friends, the family, they'll all be there. Um, so... Reunion with God, and the, and reunion with my wife.
0: Hmm. It was a strong list.
1: It is a strong list, and you know, here's the thing, because you have to come to an understanding, which was very hard for me. Once you're in heaven, your wife is not your wife. What do you there mean is that? no, there is no marriage in heaven. There's not that sacred To me, it's uh, marriage is a sacrament, but. She is going to be Barbara. She is Barbara. But she's not going to be my wife. And what about my wife now? What's she going to be if Barbara is my wife? I can't have two wives. I I certainly want to see my current wife in heaven eventually as well. So, and there is a parable about that, where Jesus talks about. There is no marriage in heaven. And at first it was very upsetting. What's going to happen? I mean, won't Barbara be my wife again? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, forget the label. Everything that she was to you before, everything important that she was to you before, she still will be. You just won't label it my wife. Mm-hmm. And that, I can live with that. <laughs> That's okay. The label mm-hmm. is not important. It's the actual relationship and what it meant. That, I have to say, that is something I want after I die or when, when I die. I- but it's kind of hard to say when and after. hmm It's when you die, you mean at the moment you die? Yeah. Have you thought about that? Have you considered what your moment of passing would look like? Sure. And it's based on a lot of reading of near-death experiences and Mm -hmm. having patients who've had near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. So I've read a dozen books or more on near-death experiences and I've had patients with it. And they all say about the same thing. You go through this long tunnel uh, you feel yourself separating. First, you feel yourself separating from your body. You lift from your body. Then you can actually look down and see all that's happening to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you find yourself all of a sudden transported. Then there's a long tunnel. Some people actually talk about other people on the sides which haven't quite made the transition, but they're still there. It's almost like a purgatory. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. People who have not yet let go of their of what they had in this life and haven't been able to let go of their material things they're in a transition state which actually explains purgatory Mm -hmm. which is or limbo whatever you want to call it and then you you see a light and this one woman said when she crossed over the threshold and met the light she was engulfed by this light she said which was the most overwhelming expression of love that she has ever ever felt it engulfed her completely it bubbled in and out of her so she was not only in it it was in her and she said she felt at complete peace absolute absolute love and then she came back mm-hmm. and a lot of people will talk about the light being so loving and by the way um, non-critical the light God is not sitting there saying okay you were bad mm-hmm. you did ABCD wrong God doesn't do that God actually according to the near uh, near-death experiences this expression your life passes by you a before you is true people well, that's true according to people they say Everything that happened to them in their lives appears before them simultaneously and they experience all those events immediately. And what's interesting, they experience not only how they felt at the time and what they thought at the time, they also experience what other people with whom you were interacting felt at the time. Mm-hmm. So if you were being mean to someone, you would feel their upsetness. You would mm-hmm. feel their anger. You would, f- you would feel their the emotions they were feeling. And... Based on that, you judge yourself. You realize, I was unkind. I was selfish. I was angry. I was prejudicial. I was bigoted. I was sick. You feel it because of the other people's feelings. And you end up judging yourself. And God is just mm-hmm. there to show you the reality of your life. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you judge yourself. In, in the presence of perfect light and perfect knowledge. Mm-hmm. In that presence. Not with the blinders that we have and the excuses that we make, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to make it seem better than it really is. That's taken away. It's pure truth. And you see exactly what happened in your life, how you behaved when you did things well and when you did things badly. So I think that at the moment of death, that's what's going to happen. You also, very often people are met... By someone close to them, related to them in some way, they meet them mm-hmm. first before they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. Barbara.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I haven't talked this much about her in ages. I don't talk about her because I'm remarried. them. you don't bring this up to your current wife all the time about your f- former wife. And I don't. I bring it up with my kids once in a while. But I keep it in most of the time. So this is the most I've talked about how I feel about Barbara and what my thoughts are about Barbara for a long, long time. I, That's
0: why it's it's still raw. I truly appreciate yeah. it. Your vulnerability and yeah. your sharing of this. Cause.
1: Yeah, well, it's life. Yeah. It's life. We all, uh, almost none of us is going to leave this world unscathed mm-hmm. or unhurt in some way. But that, in my opinion, is the absolute purpose of this life. If you come here and you can't learn something from it and try to be better from it, then you've wasted that opportunity. But this is this is the opportunity for being becoming, hopefully, a better person mm-hmm. on your way to eventually
0: reunion with God. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked a lot about uh, what you want after you die, in terms of what you would like to experience, the the questions you'd like to ask, the people you you would like to see. But I would like to just take kind of take a, get back to the terrestrial and understand what do you what do you want for for humanity, for the earth as a whole, uh, like after afterwards, after your passing, because things are wacky, right?
1: They really are wacky, and, <laughs> and it's very distressing these days. Well, I mean, it, it's too simple an answer to give, but frankly, obviously, you know. I'm a big fan of Star Trek. Mm. And Star Trek takes place in the future where all that's been worked out. Mm -hmm. There's no money. Mm -hmm. People don't have money because they don't have to go buy things. So there are not people who have a lot of money and people who have little money. There's no need for money. Uh, All your desires are supplied. Uh, Everybody gets along, and not only gets along, they all get along with other species, much less Mm -hmm. their own species. Uh, So... Uh, will that ever happen? Oh Lord, I mean, I, I certainly hope it does. I, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I just think that human beings are so fallible that, short of divine intervention, there'll always be a little bit of strife. But at least, could we, could we lessen it to something a little crazy than it currently is? Can we get people of different faiths and no faiths to agree that there is a common good? regardless of whether we believe the same thing or not. And at least work towards a common good, even if we don't agree with everything. Let's find something we agree on and work towards it. But I think that it, what I'd like to see happen, you know, down eventually, during my lifetime would be great, after I die, if not, is to eliminate want. Eliminate want in the world. Nobody should go to bed hungry. In the world, no one. No one should go to should not have a roof over their head. That's a nice roof, not just a tin shack. (laughs) Nobody should walk around uh, with shoes that are made from plastic bottles, which I've seen in Africa. They should all have clothing. Nobody should have concerns about being bankrupted because of their health care costs. Everybody should have food, shelter, uh, clothing, uh, basic necessities, and everybody should feel safe and wanted and loved. Every person in the world should feel that they are loved. If not by everyone, at least by many. Mm-hmm. And anything short of that is really unacceptable. It's, it's, so, it, it's, you know, I can't, there's no clever answer for this because it's, you know, it's like almost a Miss USA Padgett answer. <laughs> this, is, this is what I want for the world, but I do. I want people not to be in want. Mm -hmm. There's no reason, it's it's through pure selfishness that there are people in this world who want. Mm -hmm. There are those that have too much, and there are those that don't have enough, and there's no reason why there should not be better sharing. I'm not saying that if you are brilliant, and you come up with a wonderful idea, and you improve humanity, and you make lots of money, you shouldn't do that. That's great, you should. But no one should be happy as long as one single human being feels unsafe, threatened, is in pain, is hungry is unclothed, is, is unsheltered, is not part of the community, and feels loved. Mm. Nobody should be happy until that is fixed. My favorite part of the Bible is Matthew, the 25th chapter of Matthew, uh, verses uh, 31 to 46, where Jesus talks about the shepherd who's got... He says, God is like the shepherd who's got the, the, the sheep and the goats, and he separates them, the sheep and the goats, and he explains how uh, this um, uh, fellow who um, believes that he's righteous and all that, you know, meets up with God, and God sort of says, No, you, you know, get away from me. <laughs> and, and he says, Well, uh, haven't I uh, sacrificed towards you? Haven't I this? Haven't I paid the tithes? And, and God says, you know, basically... Um I was hungry but you did not feed me. I was thirsty you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked you didn't make me you didn't clothe me. I was in prison you didn't visit me. And then another person comes and they haven't done much they feel that they're unworthy but they're welcomed into heaven. And they say well and and um so why? And he says well um I was I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was etc. And then he ends up, and then Jesus ends up saying the following statement, which to me is one of the most important statements in the entire Bible and is often ignored completely. Because people say, listen, all all religions teach the same thing. They all teach, feed the the, the hungry, clothe the naked. This is is the golden rule. Mm -hmm. All religions teach that. Why is this story different? Because at the very end, Jesus says if you had done it to the least of these my brothers and sisters you have also done it to me. Now I believe that Jesus is the incarnation of God or God's presence amongst us. God is saying to you that when you feed the hungry you're feeding him. It's it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It's not just feeding the hungry. It's Feeding God, so that's ultimately what should happen in this world.
0: That's why but, you set that bar so high of, of every everyone, everyone, not just not just most, not you just, know, just you know five standard deviations. It's tr- it's,
1: tr- it's, tr- it's some some theologians have said as long as a man, one man is suffering or woman said Jesus is still on the cross. He has not come down mm-hmm. from the cross. He will not come down from that cross until all this is taken care of. And we are keeping him on the cross. That's the other teaching that the, the philosophers say, the theologians. We are keeping Jesus on that cross. He is still crucified in a metaphorical way because we have not followed Matthew to the nth degree. There's no wiggle room there, in my opinion. There's no wiggle room. There's no excuse. You can't say, well, I've done it mostly. Not good enough. It has to be 100%. So that part, that part of Scripture, which says you have also done it to me, says to me, I believe we're all God, all of us are God's children, even the, the people in ISIS, who I find despicable, they're still God's children. And unless we treat everyone as, as we are treating God, as, as, as how we should treat God, then we are falling short of what is expected of us. I understand we can't all reach that. Um, you, you have to be perfect to do that or at least you have to be a saint and I'm neither perfect nor a (laughs) saint so I'm angry at Isis but nevertheless uh, that's the goal so Mm -hmm. what do I want to see happen after I die I want to see Matthew 25 31 to 46 be the the golden rule for everyone Mm -hmm. everyone irrespective of whether they believe or not believe it's it's irrelevant Mm -hmm. some of the most some of the nicest people and good people I've known are atheists. Some pretty nasty people I've known are religious. So, uh, you know, you can be an atheist and be a wonderful person. And you can be a, 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 a quote, religious person, very, very strongly religious, and, and not be a very good person, really, unfortunately. Mm-hmm.
0: That gives religion a very bad name. Mm-hmm. and and like along the lines of, of like your reference to Star Trek that only happened because of first contact that they, yes. there was some they needed uh, the the earth literally needed to get shaken yes. in their understanding of their place in the universe yes. to to experience that change where they became the federation yes. uh and and who knows if we'll get there who yes. knows what it would take for us to get to that point of 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 universal happiness of, yeah. of universal I can see indes- you're a Star Trek fan that's <laughs> <Yeah>. wonderful <laughs> Dr. Corker right yes yes yeah <laughs>
1: absolutely that's very good Yeah, I completely agree uh, you know it's a very high bar as you say but it's still what we should be aiming for Absolutely,
0: And I think this is a great note to end on And uh, I want to give you the last few moments last few minutes To address the audience directly Whoever's listening through this little microphone on the desk uh, Whether it's uh, uh, another medical student who, who happens to think you're the Jedi Of the physical exam And wants to hear your thoughts on these prompts Or maybe it's uh, someone in the future uh, In the distant future who, who thinks, you know, this guy who's in the Osler Society Is pretty cool And I want to, I want to know his thoughts uh, uh, to me directly So uh, the floor is yours
1: I would um, I would recommend that you look out for John Donne the mystic philosopher the mystic poet and read um, now I'm blanking on the number he had a series of things he wrote but the one which begins no man is an island read that and take it to heart so for people in medicine as a physician where it says that no man is an island you know every part every person is a part of the whole and um and th- this applies to medicine this is your your fellow human beings are part of you in a way we're all connected we really are all connected
0: meditation 17 by john Donne. no man is an island entire of itself every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. And therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee.